four, and we're <clears throat> I was listening to a sermon uh, this week by a man named John Fulmer, who is a pastor and church planner in the United Arab Emirates, UAE for short. And he was preaching on Psalm 100, and he made a comment about the book of Psalms, which I don't think was original to him, but it's original to me from him. So, But his comment was about the book of Psalms is that the Bible is God's word spoken to us, but that the book of Psalms is unique in that it gives us words to utter back to him. And I feel like that really captures the essence and the importance of the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is unmatched for the way it expresses the complexities of living in a fallen world. These are songs which God's people are, are meant to take with them into every circumstance. And I hope maybe that God has used this series through the Psalms of Ascents to impress the usefulness and the value of these songs on your own heart so that you'll take this, even as we transition to the book of Joshua next week, but that you'll take this, uh, that you, I hope that you've developed a little bit of a love for the Psalms and how real and rich they are uh, that you'll take with you in your, in your ongoing personal devotion to God. Now, having come to the end of this series this morning, I wonder, I want to ask you, what if you were in charge of writing or compiling these songs, how would you end things? Let's just say that you got put in a position where that was your job. How would you end them? How would, how would you wrap up this worship album? Well, as we've discovered in our time working through these songs, there is a definite progression to the Psalms of Ascents from the, the loaves of Psalm 120, which is a cry to God for deliverance, to Psalm 132, which settles our hopes in God's dwelling place under the rule and the reign of his anointed king. I mean, it is hard to top a mountaintop moment like Psalm 132.18. Hard to add anything to God's promise to crown David's promised offspring with glory. I mean, you kind of want to just let it ring, right? And just walk away. It's like a mic drop moment. But the Psalms of Ascents go further. I find that good stories, without any exception that I can think of, have happy endings. At least a resolution. And the Psalms of Ascents tell a story. They tell a story of, the, of God's work of redemption, of his deliverance of his people. They extol God's promises, and they raise our gaze to behold the glory of God in the face of his anointed king. Psalm 132 ends there, but what we find is that that's not the end of God's plan of redemption. Because in Psalm 133 and Psalm 134, we see how the peace of God, which has been secured by that anointed David, Davidic king, extends out to sanctify us, not only in our relationship with him, but also in our relationship with each other. You see, the gospel isn't limited to the private relationship that each one of us has with God. It invades every aspect of who we are. And it binds us together uh, to one another in the sweet 
fellowship of Christ. And that's what we want to look at today in Psalm 133 and 134. If Psalm 132 was bringing our eyes and our attention to the glory of being in God's dwelling place, Psalm 133 and 134 show us how being there helps us to dwell with one another in the unity of Jesus. So let's begin by reading our text. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word as I read from Psalm 133 and Psalm 134. A song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. A song of ascents. Come, Bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Please be seated. Well, as we read these two psalms, considering how we really reach the pinnacle of the psalms of ascents, Last week, when we were looking at Psalm 132, in Zion, in the presence of God and his king, we see the focus of these songs shift a little bit to consider the added benefits that come to God's people as they dwell together in the presence of the Almighty. The gospel doesn't end with the restoration of that vertical relationship between God and man. It extends out onto the horizontal plane to affect the relationship that each one of us has with each other. The gospel brings unity to God's people, the sort of unity that is sweet and precious and unique and greatly to be desired. This is the way that things were supposed to be. When Jesus says that he is making all things new, it includes not only our relationship with God, but also our relationship with each other. And so it's important for believers to understand that, which brings us to our main idea, that if we have been unified with Christ in faith, then we have also been unified with one another. If we have been unified with Christ, then we have also been unified with one another. Now, in our time together, I want to look at really three uh, categories that come out of this relationship. We want to look at the quality of that relationship, the source of that relationship, and the effect of that relationship, that unity that we have on one, with one another in worship. So I want to ask and answer three questions for you this morning. First of all, what is it that makes this unity that David speaks about so unique? What is it that makes unity, the unity that is enjoyed by God's people, so, so sweet and unique? Second, we want to look at where that unity actually comes from. It doesn't just spring out of the ground. It has a source. So that's what we want to look at in our second point. And then thirdly, we want to look at a little bit of the application of how that unity affects us. And we want to specifically look at how this unity affects our worship. So let's begin by looking at the, and talking about the quality of this unity. What makes unity so sweet? We live in a world that is full of trolls. And I'm not talking about those ugly, magical creatures in fairy tales or the ones that you find in Walmart with crazy hair. 
Trolls are people who get pleasure out of antagonizing other people, oftentimes with inappropriate, typically public comments, things that are designed specifically to get under your skin. Trolls say things that divide people and tear them down. They bait them into banter and then laugh at them. No one is better at trolling than brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters know how to get under their sibling's skin in ways that nobody else can. They know which buttons to put. I don't know why I always look at the Arnoldies when I say that. Uh, sorry. Sorry, guys. Um, brothers and sisters, they know how to get under each other's skin. They know which buttons to, buttons to push. And trolling, you know, can be kind of fun, especially if it is your brother or sister. It, it brings a sort of cheap, fleeting pleasure and we find that it actually feeds our pride at the cost of someone else's dignity. Now, God has designed something better for us. Something that is more satisfying than taking cheap shots at the dignity of others. He's designed us for unity. In the verse 1 of Psalm 133, David says, Behold, or look, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. How, how good is it? How pleasant is it? Well, David says, it's like precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Unity amongst brothers, according to David, is like a sacred, sweet-smelling perfume, it has a fragrance to it, a smell that makes it precious and desirable. Now, growing up, I remember how when we would go to visit my grandparents, especially specifically my mom's parents, my sister and I would, would run to their front door. I can still smell the garage. But then it was, as soon as we opened that door, we would, the first thing that would greet us is the smell of my grandmother's sweet-smelling perfume. It's the sort of smell that lingers on your clothes and follows you out the door. Even now, when we go down to visit them, I know that that smell is going to be there to greet us. And when I smell it, it's comforting. It's, it's good. It's something I look forward to, actually, because it, it takes me back. And you get all of those memories that you made there. It's like that is the odor of a good time with your grandparents. It's a comforting smell. And it brings all of those memories that we had together, all those times of togetherness, back to my mind. It makes me eager to see what we're going to do this time. Now, David was a man who knew the value of unity. He knew that it was a rare and a precious thing because for so much of David's life, his household and the nation of Israel could hardly have been called a household of unity and peace. When David was a young boy tending his, his father's sheep, his father gathered all of his brothers together to eat with the prophet Samuel, a high privilege. But he left David out in the field with the sheep. Later on, leading up to David's showdown with Goliath, his brothers actually accused him of having false motives, of being prideful and arrogant, even though his father had been the one who had sent him to go check on them. Even though David was chosen by God and anointed by the prophet Samuel to reign as king after Saul, when Saul died, we see that David was not immediately recognized by the nation as king. Or rather, men seeking their own political agendas 
plunged the nation of Israel into a terrible, bloody civil war where brother fought against brother until finally David was crowned king. And then, only a few years after David had been fully recognized as king of Israel, there was trouble in his own house, which eventually led to the murder of his son Amnon by his other son Absalom, which then led to Absalom's being estranged from the family and eventually trying to take the kingdom over for himself. Unity in a family, let alone unity in a nation, even among God's people, is something that David knew not to take for granted. He thirsted for it. And that's why he says it's such a good and pleasant thing. Now, living in a fallen world, strife and division are the norm for us. We take it for granted. Uh, our, our shows and the, thing, the, the things we like to watch, they all have some sort of drama in them. And it's hard for us to imagine a storyline that doesn't have some sort of conflict. Division and conflict are a product of sin. After Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, the curses that fell on them were the curses of fighting and division. Adam, he was told, would have to fight against the ground from which he was made to try to scrape out a living for his family. Eve would face childbirth with pain and agony. Husband and wife, we are told, would fight against each other In Genesis 4, we see how far the curses of sin went in that Cain murdered his own brother Abel out of jealousy. And so it is today. Where sin reigns, there is no peace and there is no unity. There is selfishness and strife. There is discontent and longing. God made us for something else, something better. He has designed us for unity. He has designed us to have something that is precious. Unity is desirable because it is God's design for us. David, in this passage, uses some very interesting imagery to describe just how good and just how pleasant unity is. The first image that he uses here describes how rare and impactful this sort of of togetherness is. Uh, It's sort of a odd image, uh, the image of this oil going down someone's head, Uh, but there's some significance going on here. There's only one place in the world where you could experience this smell for yourself. This oil, this ointment, or this perfume, it was reserved exclusively for use in God's house. David paints this vivid description of this precious oil as it was used in the anointing of Aaron, who served the nation as the high priest. And I want to dive into the, a little deeper into the significance of that image a little later. For now, I just want to draw your attention to the excessive nature of this oil. Uh, as we read this, this is, this is not just a little dab on the neck and on the wrist. This is the picture of excessive abundance. It's a picture of overwhelming joy, the kind of smell that fills and overwhelms the room. Unity, according to this, is a treasure that has an impact not on just the person who's part of it, but on everyone in the room, everyone who's around it. When brothers dwell together in unity, it fills the room with joy. Now the second image that David uses here is this picture of dew settling on the mountains of Zion. 
Now, he talks about Mount Hermon here. Her, uh, Mount Hermon is known for its height, but it's also known for its lushness because of the heavy dews that fall regularly there. Uh, th- this is an area of the world that is unique and different. Uh, when Israel was in Egypt, they got exposed to irrigation, and the Nile is very important there. But when they came to the Promised Land, uh, we see God talking about how he would water the earth. And Mount Hermon was one of those places where the dew falls so heavy, it's like it rains every night. It's beautiful and lush. When there is unity among brothers, David says, it brings refreshment. It brings fruit. It brings the blessing of life according to the command of God. Indeed, what we realize as we read David's description of brotherly unity is that we're forced to recognize that just as God is the one who waters the earth and brings life to it, so God is the source of the unity that David has in mind here. Which is what brings us to that second question of where does this come from? And that brings us to our second point, to see the source of this unity. Where does this unity between brothers, such as David is describing here, come from? It comes from God. When David says that it is a good and pleasant thing for brothers to dwell together in unity, I think it's clear that he has more in mind than saying, hey, let's just all get along here. No, this isn't just people tolerating each other. It's the unity of agreement, the unity of fellowship that flows out of a right relationship with God. The ultimate answer for why this sort of unity is so precious, for why it's so valuable, so sweet, isn't because things are better when we just get along. No, it's sweet and precious because it's a work that only God can bring about. Something unique which he has provided for in the work of Jesus Christ. David uses some remarkable images uh, to describe the value of the unity that he has in mind. And given the placement of this song and its connection to Psalm 132 and then the, the, the descriptions that David picks to speak about this unity, we are meant to understand, as Spurgeon says, that brothers dwell in unity when God dwells among them and finds rest with them. Of all the images that David could have used to depict how good, how pleasant this unity is, why does he use this this image, something that he never saw, of Aaron anointing, being anointed, and then this dew falling on the mountains of Zion? Well, he picks these because he wanted to depict how this life-giving blessing flows out of a right relationship with God. Let's take a little bit deeper look at this imagery of Aaron's anointing. Aaron's anointing announced that God has selected him to serve as the high priest of Israel. It was Aaron's job to intercede for the nation before God, to offer atonement for the nation and their sin, and to ensure that the people knew how to live before a holy God. Aaron's anointing was precious not because of the expense of the oil that that he was anointed with. It was precious because it marked a relationship between God and his people through an intermediary. They had a representative before God. Now the second image here, this image of the dew of Hermon, which is falling on the mountains of Zion, is significant because of the location that's being, that's being uh, drawn attention to here. This is the place that God had chosen to be his dwelling place. Remember what we read in Psalm 132 and verses 13 through 18. We saw this, that the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. 
This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. This dew, as David speaks of, which fell in rich abundance, is falling here on Mount Zion, the place where God had chosen to make his dwelling place. For, verse 3 explains, there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. Unity amongst brothers is the result of God's redemptive work. That is why David speaks of it in the terms that he does. Everyone knows it's good when people can manage to live with each other in a certain amount of harmony. But unity that God's people experience with one another is a whole other thing. And it's a whole other thing because God has made his dwelling place with them. Unity is a defining feature amongst God's people because it's a reflection of the unity that God has in himself. And it's a result of the work of Jesus Christ who is our anointed high priest. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have existed in eternity in perfect unity in one nature. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, before he went to the cross, prayed to the Father for his disciples, saying, Father, sanctify them. Make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you have sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And this is where the promise gets real. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So there is Jesus in the high priestly prayer praying to the Father for the unity of his people. This is God's design for the church. A unity, a, a fraternity, a brotherhood, a oneness with Christ through faith, which makes us something that we were not before. It makes us one with each other. God's design for the church is that it should exist as one body. Do you see then why this unity was so precious that David speaks of? Why David's imagery under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit plays on these themes of the high priest and of the dwelling place of God? The gospel is not just the story of how we can be saved from hell. It is far more than that. It is about how God has actually secured redemption for us. How He has given us an inheritance of sonship with Christ. How He has made us one with Him. And how He has made us all one with one another. The gospel binds us together with Christ in a unity that we could never have otherwise. And likewise, it binds believers together as one people, under one Savior, part of one family, in a unity that is more precious than gold. 
Uh, Paul lays this out in Ephesians 2, verse 12, when he says, Remember, you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The separation that sin placed between us and God and us and each other, Christ broke that down by himself being broken on the cross. It is hard for me as I read about Aaron being anointed with this precious oil as a high priest, not to think about Jesus, who himself was anointed in Mark 14 in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. You may remember how Jesus answered his disciples who were grumbling about this waste, this excess. How he answered them and said that she, that what she had done would be told of her everywhere the gospel went. And that she had, in effect, anointed his very body for burial. Jesus suffered and died on the cross to make atonement for sins. By taking on our sin, putting them to death on the cross, embracing the tomb, and then rising again on the third day, Jesus has made an effective atonement for sin, and he reigns and rules as our king, and he serves as our great high priest, something of which Adam, or sorry, something of which Aaron was but, but a type and a shadow. When we think about Jesus' work on the cross, most often I think that we, we think about how Jesus came to make peace between God and man. But we also have to remember that Jesus has secured a peace and a unity between people. You may remember how Jesus said that the first and greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. But you must also remember that he said that the second greatest commandment was like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In this, Jesus declared, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus came, he says, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The precious smell of unity between brothers. Unity as it was meant to be. Unity that David celebrates in this psalm is the fragrance of the person and the work of Christ, who is our great high priest. And David spoke highly of the unity which is among brothers as a result of God's dwelling with them. And this is a vital connection for us as we think about what it means to be the church, to be the body of Christ here on earth. Jesus has fulfilled and he has elevated the unity that David spoke of here through his work on the cross. And so we see in Philippians 1, 27 and 28, Paul writing to the church, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, 
with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. He then goes on to say, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. When you and I embrace the identity, this identity, that Jesus has secured for us through his death and his resurrection, it completely changes the way that we look at each other. Jesus' work on the cross means trading self-regard for regarding others as more highly than ourselves. Jesus not only models love for us when he goes to the cross, he actually makes us capable of loving each other in this way. So if we are one with him, his love will be the fragrance that lingers on us and that binds us together, even as we leave these four walls. The local church can be a place of bitter disunity and strife. And I know that many of you have experienced that, where some of the people who you thought ought to be the most explicit declarations of the love of Christ became some of the most wretched enemies of that love. A church is a messy place because we are all sinners. But the church is a beautiful place because Jesus, it, Jesus calls the church his bride and he died for his bride. He loves her. He has called us to love her as well and to be part of her. As Christians, we've been called to love one another, to be at peace with one another, to press on together for the truth of the gospel, and to serve one another for the sake of the glory of King Jesus, who has made us one in him. This morning, we get to celebrate not one, but two ordinances which God has given to his church, which communicate that same union which we have with Christ and with one another. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism vividly declares the unity that believers have with Christ by faith, which likewise identifies us as part of the body of Christ in the fellowship of other baptized believers. Baptism is like the putting on of the uniform, which identifies us in our allegiance to Jesus and his people. It is both an act of the church, which affirms and portrays a believer's union with Christ by immersion of water, and it is an individual believer's act of publicly committing themselves to Christ and his people, which marks them off from the rest of the world. Mike and Sharon, this is a major thing that we come to do, and it's so exciting. And we get to celebrate. One of the reasons we don't celebrate baptism privately is because it is meant to bind us together as one. So we're looking forward to that, and I know you are too. Paul makes this connection very vividly clear in Romans 6 when he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In a few moments we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper 
And in doing so, we confess together as a church and as individual members of it, our union with Jesus. As we partake of the bread and the juice, we are identifying ourselves in an ongoing relationship with him. We do this as a church because in the gospel, Jesus has not only united us together as individual believers to himself, but he's also united us together as one people through the covenant of his blood. So, how does this impact our lives? How does this affect our worship? That's our third point here. Well, the Song of Ascents tells a story, a story of God's redemption that culminates in an anointed king, a great high priest, and a heavenly Zion where God's people dwell with him forever. The ending of that story is an invitation to come into God's house to worship. So look it with me here at Psalm 134. Come, Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy places and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. When God dwells with his people in unity and joy, and they dwell together with one another in the overflow of that unity and joy, the result is the praises of God being lifted to him by his people. Psalm 134 is a call to come and to worship in God's presence. But the chord that holds the lines of this song together is really as we see the theme of worship and blessing. In verses 1 and 2, the psalmist twice calls the servants to to come to the Lord and to bless him. Now, blessing the Lord is not an activity where we add anything to him. Rather, it's a response to God that exalts him for who he is. It is being astounded with awe and wonder at his majesty, responding to him with due affection and praise. We do not add worth to God through our worship. Rather, we react to his excellence with praise and joy. We make much of God by satisfying the desires of our souls in his presence. And likewise, God fills our hearts with the joy of his presence. This psalm, was designed to take place in the temple. Now, I haven't found anything authoritative to say this, but it is thought by many people, by many scholars, that these songs would have been sung by the people and by the priest as they came to arrive at the top of the temple mount. So you can imagine how they arrive at the place where God has said his presence will will be present with them, and then they exalt him there. This is a preparation for worship. And we notice that this charge of praise is given here to those who stand by night in the house of the Lord. And that the location of their praise is actually in the holy place. So when this psalm was written, it's likely that it was addressed specifically to the Levites, since they were the ones who served in the house of the Lord day and night, attending to the needs of the people in worship. But once again, as I think Jesus has elevated this psalm, we see it has been expanded to all of God's people. Because in Revelation 5, we hear how the 24 elders fell before the Lamb and sang, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests. To our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This call of worship, this call to worship, isn't given merely to a priestly class 
or a priestly tribe as if we should understand. These are, this is only for elite Christians. No. It is for everyone who has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. This, this is the blessing of the Lord who has called men and women from every nation and tribe and tongue to himself and has saved them and made them priests to live and to serve in the presence of his Father. So, if you have believed the good news of the gospel, if you have abandoned hope for righteousness in any other thing, including your own efforts, other than Jesus, then this is your calling, your inheritance. I think that radically changes how we worship, don't you? When we come here on a Sunday morning, we get to be with God's people, our brothers and sisters, men and women who have been purchased by the Savior's blood. There's a value to each and every person you encounter. Together we get to lift our voices to Him in prayer and in song, knowing that the sacrifices of praise that we offer up to Him are pleasing in His sight because of the blood of our Savior. Together, we get to take part in building one another up, not just here and now, but throughout the week as we spend time with one another and we fellowship over the Word. We get to press one another and sharpen one another in the knowledge of the truth and exalt Christ together. All this should make us hungry for God's worship, hungry to bring praise into His presence. We've been made part of a family, brothers and sisters from all sorts of backgrounds who are one in the body and the blood of Christ. So, church, let us dwell together in unity, knowing that we are family and that Jesus is pleased to call us his brothers and sisters. Let us do this as we hope in the inheritance that he has purchased for us. And let us rejoice together as one in the hope of the new Jerusalem and in the new Zion. Let's pray. Father, we exalt you, for you are holy. And we are not worthy of your affection. And yet you have poured that love out on us, so that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died. And the promise stands that all who repent and believe in this good news will be saved. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, who is the sign and the guarantee of this reality. And we ask, Father, that as we continue to live with one another, that you would clothe us in unity in the truth of the gospel and that you would be exalted forever and ever. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.